Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today's Thursday, February 16. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Pence rails against radical school transgender policy. This story is by Tom Barton and Bailey Sishan for the Gazette. In a precursor to a potential run for the White House, former Vice President Mike Pence took aim Wednesday at the Lenmar Community School District and its transgender-affirming policies during a rally in the early GOP-nominating state. No one should have a greater role over what our children are learning or the values they're brought being taught than their parents, Pence said to a room full of parents and supporters at a pizza ranch in Cedar Rapids. The Lenmar policies adopted last year, but largely in place at many other school districts as well, spell out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving them access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that correspond with their chosen gender identity. Students in the seventh grade or above could, re- could request a gender support plan that calls for teachers and peers to address the student by a new name and new pronouns. The policy leaves it up to the students whether to notify parents. Pence said, quote, average Americans have been dragged into a left-wing culture war that has invaded our schools, our colleges, and our workplaces. Every day we are told that not only we have to tolerate the increasingly bizarre obsessions with race and sex and gender, but we have to enthusiastically participate or face severe consequences. And nowhere is this problem more severe than in our public schools, end quote, said the Republican former vice president. In addition to gender-affirming policies, Pence also mentioned critical race theory, calling it, quote, state-sanctioned racism, end quote. The broad-based term was developed in the legal field and largely taught in law schools and other graduate-level settings that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions. Many Republicans have since cast it as a culture war effort to rewrite American history and convince white people that they are inherently racist. There is little to no evidence, though, it is being taught to K-12 public school students though some ideas central to it, such as lingering consequences of slavery, have been. The rally was part of an outreach campaign by Advancing American Freedom, a group formed by Pence in 2021 and financed by his supporters. The campaign, which will include digital ads, rallies, and events, seeks to combat policies it says effectuate students' gender transition without parents' knowledge and restore parental rights. The visit coincided with oral arguments before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Paul, Minnesota, in a case brought by a group representing parents of Linmar students against the school district. Advancing American Freedom filed an amicus brief, along with 20 other pro-family organizations, in support of the lawsuit against Linmar. A judge last fall denied a motion for an injunction sought by the group against the district saying it would block students from any protection against from harassment and bullying on the basis of gender identity and would prevent the school from disciplining such harassment and bullying under federal and state law as it is required to do. 
The policy ensures public schools are productive, safe places to educate children and to ensure no child is subject to harassment, bullying, or made to feel lesser for any reason by students, staff, and others while at school, the court ruled. The parents who filed the lawsuit argue the policy allows school staff to create a gender support plan without their consent and assert their fundamental right to make decisions about the care, custody, and control of their children, according to court documents. They also fear children would be unfairly punished for not using a student's preferred pronouns or voicing certain opinions concerning transgender issues. None of the parents, though, assert their child had been given a gender support plan without their consultation or that any child has been disciplined for any misuse, intentional and repeated or otherwise, of another child's name or pronouns. Everybody has a right to go to school and be safe, said Amy Wichtendahl, a Hiawatha City Council member and the state's first transgender elected official. We're here for the freedom of all students to live authentically. Wichtendahl was among a group of roughly 50 protesters who held American and LGBTQ pride flags and signs that read, quote, love welcomes all, trans rights are human rights, and don't legislate hate, end quote. The issue has become a rallying cry with conservatives across the state. Governor Kim Reynolds has made school choice the centerpiece of her 2023 legislative agenda, and the Republican-controlled Iowa legislature is advancing legislation barring schools from supporting a student's social change in gender ed- identity and prohibiting public schools from teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation in certain grades. Supporters, including Christian conservative advocacy organization The Family Leader, say such measures keep parents informed and ensure school employees can't hide information about a student's requested gender transition or identity from parents. Critics contend The measures endanger the safety, welfare, and autonomy of transgender or gender-fluid youth and adds to existing stigma and discrimination of LGBTQ youth who already face higher health and suicide risks than their peers. LGBTQ advocates say the parental notification requirements could effectively require teachers to out students grappling with their personal identity to potentially unsupportive or abusive family members. At the end of the day, they're about hurting lives and not improving the lives of Iowans, Wichtendahl said, and they need to stop this and actually start delivering for Iowans and the American people. This kind of self-reinforced bigotry costs lives, and those are the lives we are trying to protect. So if you want to go ahead and protect your kids' lives, why don't you start by listening to them and stop trying to run over them? Pence was joined by Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, who made parental rights a focal point of her successful re-election campaign last year. Hinson's two sons attend Linmar schools. She stressed the importance of parents being in charge of their child's education and that woke policies like Linmar's wrongly box parents out. Hinson said, school administrators, school board members, or educators should not be allowed to help facilitate a change in gender identity for a student at school without parental consent or knowledge. 
Hinson is a co-sponsor of the Parents' Bill of Rights legislation she said affirms that parents be notified and consulted about what is happening at their child's school, including medical or mental health issues regarding their child. I think 2023 is going to be the year of the parent, she said during Wednesday's rally, claiming districts like Linmar are prioritizing woke nonsense over Iowa common sense. Gerilyn Jones, Linn County Chapter Chair of Moms for Liberty, who attended Wednesday's rally, agreed. The group is pushing to remove what it considers obscene or objectionable books from school libraries and curriculum. Jones said she hopes to see parental rights be a focus of GOP presidential prospects. I think whoever decides to run for office needs to consider parents, especially when it comes to education and our right to parent our children, Jones said. It is our fundamental right to raise our children how we see fit. It's not school's responsibility to teach them what they want to know and what society wants them to know. Pence did not say whether he will launch a 2024 White House run against his former running mate, former President Donald Trump, who already announced his campaign. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley who formerly launched her presidential bid Wednesday, is scheduled to campaign in Urbana and Marion early next week. Asked about her entry into the race, Pence wished her well. She may have more company soon in the race for president, he said, and I promise folks here in Iowa and all of you, I'll keep you posted. Also on the front page today, lawmakers again look at limiting traffic cameras. Iowa lawmakers once again are moving forward with a bill that would restrict the ability of cities like Cedar Rapids to use traffic enforcement cameras along interstates, state highways, and county roadways. A three-member House Public Safety Committee this week advanced legislation, House File 173, that would prohibit municipalities from placing or using automated traffic enforcement systems along state and county roads within the city's boundaries, including state highways and interstates. Placement and use of such devices by cities would be restricted to city streets. However, the bill does not prohibit the Iowa Department of Transportation from placing and using the devices on primary roads or a county from placing and using cameras on secondary roads. The bill also limits the civil penalty for a traffic citation captured by the enforcement cameras. In 2018, the cities of Des Moines, Muscatine, and Cedar Rapids successfully challenged rules established by the Iowa DOT that prohibited cities from placing the systems. The foundation of the bill is not to eliminate traffic cameras, but just to decide who can place them and where said bill sponsor, Representative Matthew Rinker, Republican of Burlington. He said the bill still provides cities an opportunity to place cameras on primary roadways through a process that involves the state. The bill revives attempts over the years by Iowa lawmakers to prohibit or regulate use of the devices which capture videos of vehicles speeding or running red lights. Law enforcement then reviews the images captured by a camera vendor and issues citations to the vehicle's registered owners. Iowa cities, including Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, and Davenport, see the cam- excuse me, Davenport, see the cameras as traffic safety tools that reduce public safety costs 
while some lawmakers slam them as cash-generating constitutional violations. At least 10 Iowa cities have automated traffic enforcement systems, according to the Iowa DOT. The city of Cedar Rapids began using automated traffic enforcement in 2010. The city uses the cameras at nine locations along its primary highway system and major thoroughfares for both speed and red light enforcement, including four speed cameras around the S-curve on Interstate 380 near downtown. Speeding citations are issued for vehicles that exceed the posted speed limit by 12 miles per hour or more. Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German spoke at Tuesday's legislative hearing, expressing his strong opposition to the bill. He and Des Moines Police Chief Dana Wingert said use of the cameras has resulted in a reduction of traffic crashes, including fatalities and those with injuries. Both cities worked with the Iowa DOT to identify and place cameras along stretches of Interstate 235 or I-380 with elevated curves prone to crashes but leave no room for stationing squad cars for traffic enforcement. Any way you choose to look at this bill, it's a backdoor ban on the use of ATEs, German told lawmakers. I can unequivocally state 100% that ATEs save lives. Since Cedar Rapids began using the cameras in 2010, he said the city has witnessed only one speed-related fatality collision where the cameras are located, which occurred in 2016 during the period when the state made us turn cameras off. German provided lawmakers with a photo of the crash. A sedan traveling in excess of 100 miles per hour crashed into the back of a Cedar Rapids police sport utility vehicle stopped to investigating a wreck in the southbound lanes of I-380 near 1st Avenue W exit. Two for Cedar Rapids residents in the sedan died at the scene. Both officers survived, but one was forced to retire a month shy of his 32nd birthday due to his injuries. I can't emphasize enough that we put cameras where the data and analysis calls for them, he said, and we have seen driver behavior change. Part of the revenue from the automated traffic enforcement program is used for public safety purposes, including supporting the funding of 33 Cedar Rapids police officer positions and public safety programs. Money also has been used in the past to purchase police and fire equipment and support social justice programs such as Citizen Review Board and Urban Dreams. Since inception, Cedar Rapids has issued about 675,000 citations and roughly half have been paid, German said. During January, Cedar Rapids police officers issued 9,288 citations for speeding and red light violations captured by the traffic cameras. The cameras generated more than $5.3 million in revenue from citations for the fiscal year that ended June 30, 2022 and the city has budgeted for nearly $6 million in revenue generated by the cameras for the current fiscal year. <clears throat> Cedar Rapids partners with vendor Census Gatso USA, Inc. to run the program. For red light citation, Census Gatso receives $22 per paid citation, and the city receives $78. For speed citation, the vendor receives $20, and the amount to the city varies depending on the amount of the fine. 
The bill, supported by subcommittee Republicans, advanced to the full House Public Safety Committee. Representative Akko Abdul Samad, Democrat from Des Moines, declined to sign off on the bill. I think that since we as legislators want to help our law enforcement officers provide public safety, that we should support them, Abdul Samad said. Turning to the Iowa Today page, here are some short stories. First, man injured in shooting. A man was injured in a shooting Monday night in the Wellington Heights neighborhood, according to a Cedar Rapids Police News release. At 9.06 p.m., officers were dispatched for shots fired in the 1400 block of Washington Avenue Southeast, which is a southern boundary of Huston Park. Officers found a man with gunshot wounds. He was treated at the scene and transported to a hospital with what were considered non-life-threatening injuries, the release stated. Investigators are requesting that witnesses or those with video surveillance in the area come forward to assist with the investigation. In 2022, one-fifth of the 120 Cedar Rapids shots fired incidents happened in the Wellington Heights neighborhood, according to a Gazette review of CRPD data. And a Cedar Rapids man is facing murder charges after a fatal shooting, this by Emily Anderson. A Cedar Rapids man was arrested after a fatal shooting Wednesday morning. Brandon Johnson, 21, faces a charge of first-degree murder, according to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Police were called at 4.45 a.m. Wednesday to the 2100 block of Buckingham Drive, northwest, where they found Jorge Maldonado Vasquez, 27, with gunshot wounds. Maldonado Vasquez of Cedar Rapids was taken to a hospital and later declared deceased. A criminal complaint with more information about the shooting and charges has not yet been filed. And this story by Isabella Zaluska is titled, North Liberty Identifies Preferred Site for Its Second Fire Station. The City of North Liberty is taking the next steps toward establishing a second fire station and a new park. The North Liberty City Council on Tuesday night gave the green light for city staff to engage in discussions and negotiations with the respective property owners of the two separate projects. The City Council gave unanimous approval on proceeding with the acquisition of land for a second fire station. The site is adjacent to the west entrance of Centennial Park and has been referred to as Preferred Site 2 in previous meetings. This approval directs city staff to get started. There will be additional steps in the process that will come before City Council, including information about land appraisal. The City Council last December heard about two locations for the second station, but did not take action. Both sites are along St. Andrews Drive and across from Centennial Park. The site referred to as Preferred Site 1 is across from the park's eastern access drive, adjacent to Harvest Estates neighborhood. Residents from this neighborhood have voiced concerns about having a fire station near their neighborhood. City Administrator Ryan Heyer said the second site, which the city is moving forward with, is a good compromise. This site is 300 feet west of Site 1. With the second site, the closest existing home would be 900 feet away, the city previously said. Mayor Chris Hoffman said Tuesday the second site makes the most sense. It will do more good out there than hindrance, especially to the neighborhood. So I'm really happy that we might possibly have it in this location, Hoffman said. 
Fire Chief Brian Platts previously told the Gazette the station has to be in the right spot for decades to come and that it should be located along St. Andrews Drive. The North Liberty Fire Department and the city are pursuing a location for a second fire station as the city grows and faces an increased number of calls for service. Among the main priorities is a reduction in response times. Having the second station on St. Andrews Drive would allow the department to respond quicker to the increased calls from the south and west parts of town, as well as stay ahead of the growth expected in this area. The location also make it easier to assist the main station on West Cherry Street. The City Council on Tuesday voted unanimously to move forward with adding a new park on the north side of town, but with a slightly smaller footprint than previously proposed. The Northside Community Park Project is among the initiatives identified in the City's 2022-24 Goals Report. The City Council last year approved plans and allowed the City Attorney to begin negotiations with the property owner on acquiring the nearly 45 acres of land. The land, owned by the Mead Family Real Estate Limited Partnership, is located above West Penn Street between North Jones Boulevard and Highway 965. City staff identified an alternative configuration of real estate in the same area, which accommodates the city's future needs as well as or better than the previously identified parcel. The land includes 41 acres east of North Jones Boulevard and does not extend the full distance to Highway 965. This will preserve the area for possible commercial development, which has been a request by the property owner, Hire wrote. Gary Street, a Cedar Rapids attorney representing the Mead family, told the council in November the land is some of the most valuable potential commercial development property in the city that would be turned into non-income producing property if it becomes parkland. The council also unanimously approved a resolution establishing fair market value and just compensation for acquisition of the updated property. The appraisal determined $2.52 million as just compensation. The city attorney can begin negotiations for the property and could initiate acquisition by condemnation eminent domain if negotiations are not successful, according to the resolution. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial from the Las Vegas Review-Journal is titled, IRS Targets Tipped Workers. It was barely six months ago that Congressional Democrats voted to boost IRS funding by $80 billion over the next decade under the guise of beefing up tax enforcement and wringing more money out of billionaires and millionaires. Wage earners of less means were assured they had little to worry about from an army of new agents. Yet it would be dangerously naive to believe that financially fortifying the tax agency wouldn't have repercussions beyond the dastardly 1%, and a new IRS proposal proves just that. Last week, the agency began the process of establishing an updated TIP reporting procedure for service industry employees. The program would replace three TIP compliance agreements that have been in place with employers and workers since the early 1990s. The purpose of the reform is to capture more revenue from unreported TIPs. The plan, Yahoo reported, aims to leverage advancements in point-of-sale, time and attendance systems, 
and electronic payment settlement methods to improve TIP reporting compliance. The agency seeks to more aggressively tap data from electronic sources to more accurately assess TIP compliance. In 2018, the Treasury Department estimated that 30% of service industry employers with TIP reporting agreements failed to report $1.66 billion in TIPs during the 2016 tax year. Many existing TIP agreements, the IRS subsequently concluded, provide TIP examination protection to employees without a measurable form of TIP reporting compliance which is not in the interest of sound tax administration. The new system, agency officials maintain, will be more efficient because it removes the employee from the equation and puts the onus on employers to more accurately evaluate income. Service industry workers have an obligation to fully report income, as do all other wage earners, including billionaires. The IRS isn't imposing any new obligations, and there's no indication yet that service workers will face an increase in audits. But the whole point of the new program is to make it easier for the tax agency to minimize the number of tips that go unreported and thus collect more federal revenue. The new tip compliance proposal highlights the folly of arguing with the IRS, or excuse me, arguing that the IRS won't use its multi-billion dollar financial windfall to go after tax cheats in the middle and lower tax brackets. And 24-hour doorman today is titled, AG Gets More Power Under Bills. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd has been wielding the current powers of her office for just more than a month, and already Governor Kim Reynolds is pushing to give her Attorney General even more power. That new authority is tucked into a 1,500-page bill reorganizing state government. Its sheer size is proof that Republicans don't care much if Iowans know exactly what they're doing. Under bills in the House and Senate, Byrd's office would be allowed to prosecute any criminal proceeding on behalf of the state, even if a county attorney doesn't ask for the state's help. Traditionally, the attorney general hasn't tried to bigfoot local prosecutors unless requested. The bills also would give the Attorney General's office exclusive criminal jurisdiction over cases involving election-related crimes. It doesn't take a Harvard law grad to see what's happening. Byrd's office can grab the most high-profile, politically charged cases. She'll also crack down on voters and election officials who run afoul of Republican-backed voting restrictions, even if criminal intent is lacking. The reorganization bill also guts the Office of Consumer Advocate, an independent office that resides in the Attorney General's office. The Consumer Advocate is supposed to stick up for consumers on issues that come before the Iowa Utilities Board. For example, last year, the former advocate pushed carbon pipeline developers to provide more information on their project's safety threats. With reorganization, the independent office would become a division of Byrd's office. No longer would the consumer advocate need to be a competent attorney. So the advocate may no longer act as an attorney on behalf of consumers as current law allows. The attorney general, not the consumer advocate, would hire attorneys and support staff for the division. The advocate would no longer be insulated from political pressure by serving a four-year term, 
with removal only possible with evidence of malfeasance or nonfeasance in office, or factors that would make the advocate ineligible or unable to serve. Under the bill, the advocate would serve at the pleasure of the Attorney General and could be sacked at any time. With three carbon pipelines seeking approval to cross more than 1,500 miles of our state right now, there could not be a worse time to suggest we politicize and weaken the agency responsible for representing our public interest, said Emma Schmidt, senior Iowa organizers for Food and Water Watch, in an email. The group opposes the pipelines and the reorganization bills. Frankly put, it turns the OCA into a lapdog for the Attorney General rather than an agency that works for the people of Iowa. Schmidt said Bird sure is earning the roughly $2 million in campaign donations she received from the Republican Attorneys General Association. She won't let some Blue County processor prosecutor go soft on her watch or some rogue auditor help people vote and GOP big business allies have nothing to fear. We thought we elected an attorney general. Turns out we hired a general counsel for the Republican Party of Iowa. As promised, we're getting the bird all right. And that's 24-hour doorman. One community letter today is titled, School Choice Forces Finance of Religion. In his recent letter, Joe Peters claims that school choice will create competition and allow the cream to rise to the top. What Mr. Peters ignores is that competition will not be fair. The school choice law takes dollars from public schools to give to private religious schools. Private schools are allowed to discriminate against any student they wish to exclude. They are not required to serve children with disabilities, students who come from homes where English is not spoken, kids that require more attention and resources. Public schools are required to educate these children and now they will need to do so with less money. Although education funding has increased, it has not come close to keeping up with inflation. As a result, Iowa's education ranking has dropped from number one in the nation to mediocre. Under the new law, for every child that leaves public school to attend private school, the public school loses thousands of dollars. As a person without children, I do not object to paying taxes to support public education. But I do object to the state taking my tax dollars and giving it to religious schools run by churches that I do not belong to and whose practices I do not agree with. The new school choice law is forcing me to finance religion. Public schools lose under this program. All of Iowa will lose as our public schools, which were once the best in the nation, continue to slide. And that's signed by Robert Micklow from Iowa City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 16th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries first in the short notices from Cedar Rapids, Harry Thomas John Hoffman, age 83, died Wednesday, February 15th. Iowa Cremation is in charge of arrangements. From Independence, Wilbur C. Nielsen, age 98, died Monday, February 13th. White Funeral Home, Independence. From Maquoketa, Irene Sedbrook, 72, died Tuesday, February 14th. Carson's Celebration of Life Center, Maquoketa. 
And from Olwine, Dennis J. Lau, 68, died Wednesday, February 15. Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home, Olwine. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Barbara Sue Aiello, 73, passed away February 10, surrounded by her loving daughters. A memorial will be held at a later date. Family would like to thank West Ridge Care Center for their support. From Cedar Rapids, Russell Allen Hansen, 91, passed away Monday, February 13. Per Russell's request, there will be no services. Online condolences can be left at cedarmemorial.com, and memorials may be directed to Camp Courageous of Iowa. Also in Cedar Rapids, Michael Schwab, 68, passed away at his home. Michael's life will be celebrated at North Point, 621 Center Point Road Northeast in Cedar Rapids, February 18th from 2 to 5 p.m., where friends and family can pay their respects and honor his memory. A full obituary will be available at broshchapel.com. In Cedar Rapids, Eleanor Jean Hegland, 89, passed away Tuesday, February 14th at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Funeral service is at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service with a visitation to begin one hour prior. Burial will follow at Czech National in Cedar Rapids. You can share a memory of Eleanor at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Cedar Rapids, Adeline Kathleen Weimer passed away on Sunday, February 12, at age 95 at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, February 20 at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A visitation will begin one hour prior, starting at 10 a.m. at the chapel. Burial will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. From Independence, Clifford J. Zeiser, age 96, passed away Monday, February 13th at ABCM Rehabilitation Center West Campus in Independence. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at St. John's Catholic Church, Independence, with the Reverend David Beckman officiating. Burial will be held at St. John's Cemetery in Independence. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7.30 p.m. Friday, February 17th at the Reef Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory. A rosary will be said at 3.45, led by the Knights of Columbus, and a parish vigil service will be held at 7.30 p.m. Friday. Please make donations in his name to St. John's Catholic Church in Independence, and to leave an online condolence, visit reeffamilycenter.com. From Brooklyn, Robert, known as Bob Murtha, age 100, passed away February 13th at Brooklyn Community Estates in Brooklyn. A rosary will be held at 4 p.m. Sunday, February 19th at the Smith Funeral Home in Victor, with visitation following until 7 p.m. A funeral mass will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 20 at St. Bridget's Catholic Church in Victor with burial following at the Victor Cemetery. The family invites everyone to attend a luncheon following at St. Bridget's. The family suggests memorials be sent for a Victor American Legion Scholarship Fund. Contributions can be sent to the Smith Funeral Home. 
In Monona, Raymond Johann Wangen, age 84, passed away Monday, February 13th at the Gardens of Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 16th at the Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Monona. There will be a one-hour visitation before services at the church on Friday. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 17th at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Monona with the Reverend Erica Lenth. Leonard Garau Funeral Home and Cremation Service is assisting the family with arrangements. Turning now to the sports page, it is Boys State Wrestling Time. This story is by K.J. Pilcher. Big day for Keeney. The third time's a charm for Al Burnett's Gunnar Keeney. The Pirate senior reached the state wrestling tournament for the third straight year, but this appearance was different. He got his hand raised, which wasn't the case the last two seasons. Keeney posted victories, including an 8-4 to decision over Missouri Valley's number 6 seed, Riley Radke, in the second round of the Class 1A state tournament Wednesday at Wells Fargo Arena. He was one of six Pirates to advance to the quarterfinals. From no state wins to one win away from the state medal. It's a pretty nice confidence booster, said Keeney, the 11th seed at 145 pounds. It's nice knowing that I've been working hard and getting close to what I want. Keeney is down a weight from the last two seasons after ankle surgery robbed him of his freshman season. He qualified at 152 as a sophomore and junior, losing three of those four matches by fall, including a consolation match he led at the time of the fall. In his final opportunity, he's determined to do his best. I've got to leave it all out there, Keeney said. I'm leaving it all on the mat. Just keep wrestling hard, keep listening to my coaches, and working through stuff. Maquoketa Valley upperweights bring their gas tanks to the state. They hunt and fish together, they're good friends and have each other's back, but each day in the Maquoketa Valley wrestling room, upperweight standouts Nathan Beats, Brady Davis, and Aiden Sallow beat the crap out of each other. It's mutually beneficial if bruising. We push each other to our limits, said Sallow, who went 1-1 one one Wednesday in the Class 1A Boys State Wrestling Tournament. Every day after practice, we're broke. Sallow, a junior, seated 10th at heavyweight, will try to wind his way through the consolation bracket to attain a podium finish. Beats, the third seed, 195-pounder, and Davis, the number 8 seed at 220, both won their initial matches on Wednesday. Beats won by a decision, 7-0, over number 14, Trent Wilkerson of New London. Davis outlasted number nine, Braden New of West Monona, Whiting at seven and four. The first period, I just thought, push the pace, push the pace, push the pace, said Beats, who will face number six, Ashton Honold of Nottoway Valley today. We knew the kid would run out of gas eventually, and all three upper weights, we've got gas tanks. That's just the main goal for all of us. Another important goal, making the other two guys better, and it can be lonely at the top. Maquoketa Valley head coach Kurt Hatfield said they don't always have a dual meet opponent because some of the Wildcats' foes can't field wrestlers at the upper weights. So far, so good as all three remain alive in tough fields. 
and top-seeded heavyweight Cody Fox of East Buchanan made sure his first-round state wrestling tournament match would be anything but close. Fox, who's a four-star Iowa football recruit who sustained a severe knee injury in the Tri-Rivers Conference meet last week, won by fall in his only bout on the first day of the Class 1A tournament on Wednesday. He wrestled with a torn meniscus and bone bruise, so he's in obvious pain, but doctors told him competing at state won't make the injury any worse. That's all the tough-minded senior needed to hear. My main goal is just stay on top, said Fox, a two-time state medalist at heavyweight. Get it done and over with. Obviously, there's going to be some situations where it's maybe going to get a little more sore than others, but just got to wrestle through it. And Midland's Caden Ballou posted the biggest upset in the first session of the Class A State, or excuse me, Class 1A State Wrestling Tournament Wednesday. The 182-pound senior entered the tournament as a number 15 seed and advanced to the quarterfinals, making a pin over North Butler Clarksville's number two seed, McCade Bloker. State tournament continues today through Saturday at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Video streaming for the semifinals and finals is available for free at IHSSN.com and watch IHSSN app. Prelim, consolation, and individual matches will be available also at www.flowwrestling.com with a paid subscription. Tickets for the event are $12 for sessions 1 through 10 and $15 and $12 for upper level finals. Turning now to the hoopla section, here are some things to do. Iowa Sun Returns is this story by Diana Nolan. Orchestra Iowa is planning a reverie of past, present, and future for the American Dreams concerts coming to the Coralville Center for the Performing Arts on Friday night and the Paramount Theater in Cedar Rapids on Saturday night. The world premiere of an original piece is a dream weaving between orchestra and composer, a commissioned work by Dubuque native Michael Gilbertson. Now living in San Francisco, Gilbertson, 35, has been creating pieces for Eastern Iowa ensembles since he was in high school and served as the composer-in-residence for Red Cedar Chamber Music from 2011 to 2014. He went on to earn degrees from the Juilliard School and Yale University, and his pieces have been performed by ensembles around the world. Briefly, if you go, it's Orchestra Iowa Presents American Dreams. That will take place at 7.30 p.m. Friday at the Coralville Center for the Performing Arts. Costs are $18 to $47. Also in Cedar Rapids on seven, excuse me, on Saturday at the Paramount Theater, 7.30 p.m. Ticket prices there are $17 to $58. Discussions is at 6.30 p.m. Friday at West Music, across from the Coralville Concert Venue, 6.45 p.m. Saturday in the Paramount's Encore Lounge and those events and discussions are free to ticket holders. In light of the snow forecast, the event scheduled for the Coe College Stewart Memorial Library has been canceled. In Iowa City, the Johnson Supervisor is planning a new soul food restaurant. 
Johnson County Board of Supervisors member Roycene Porter is planning a new soul food restaurant opening soon. She announced the new restaurant in a social media post February 8. Royce, Royce, excuse me, Royce-Ann's Soul Food Cottage with signature fried chicken, fried cabbage, macaroni and cheese, and candied yams will offer a full menu including pork chops, mashed potatoes, and cornbread. Desserts include pound cake, banana pudding, and sweet potato pie. The Iowa City Press Citizen reported that the restaurant will open with the new indoor South District Market being planned at 947 U.S. Highway 6 in Iowa City's South District in a space that previously was a slumberland. Property owner Chris Vilhauer told the Press Citizen that the restaurant would open with the new market in March. Many already are familiar with Porter's cooking, which has been sampled at community events over the years, including last year's Juneteenth celebration in Iowa City. For those wanting a preview of her soul food style, Porter will be hosting a free soul food dinner at the Coralville Public Library, 1401 5th Street, from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday. And Rawlicious, a health-focused restaurant with plenty of vegan and gluten-free options, will be closing its 3rd Street Southeast location soon in the New Bohemia District on less than amicable terms. In a Sunday social media post, owners Jessica and Tony Lafayette say they will close in 60 days by April 13. Until then, they'll be operating extended hours from Tuesday to Friday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., two hours later than their usual closing time, and Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. The Lafayettes said they are being forced to close by the building's owners. The nonprofit arts organization CSPS, which shares the same building with ground-level retailers. Despite the rare, raw vegan restaurant's desire to stay and have sustainable sales, the Post said CSPS has asked them to leave to find a more bustling business for the space. The Post urged customers to contact members of the nonprofit's board. We love you all and count it a blessing to have served you, the owners said to their followers. The restaurant, where nothing is ever cooked above 115 degrees, opened in July of 2017. And it's Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week, this story by Elijah Decius. Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week is back with 21 restaurants and dozens of exclusive new cocktails, appetizers, entrees, and desserts to try. But where to begin? To get you started, I tried some of the most interesting and unique dishes and drinks in this year's lineup, from casual spots to three-course dinners, wet your appetite, or cross dishes off your list with my thoughts on new and returning restaurants. This year, Cedar Ridge is participating in Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week for a second time. Both cocktail specials bring warm flavors to the table, as Fool's Spring brings a brief reprieve from winter with 45-degree weather in February. Cedar Ridge's clientele tends to like sweeter drinks, we're told. Each of these sweet and sour drinks lines up well with other popular drinks on the menu while demonstrating the versatility of bourbon. Punxsutawney Phil predicted six more weeks of winter this year, but these drinks disagree. First up is Pom Pom Sour. If you think you don't like bourbon, this drink can convert you. The bourbon is subdued enough to coax you and bold enough 
to make an introduction. Cedar Edge's second drink, Just Peachy, matches my mood after trying the first one. Once the peach flavor settles in, it reminds me of that peach ring gummy candy. Sweet and balanced out of orange bitters to remind you it's an adult drink, even if you can't taste the vodka. Okonomiyaki at the hip stir. This favorite Japanese pancake is being served with a Korean twist in Marion. Chef Adam Gardner said this pancake can be made with anything you've got on hand. This week they're using shrimp, scallions, and kimchi to bring something whimsical to restaurant week with enough familiarity to tempt you. A pretty common theme through hipsters menu. And gyros at O's Grill. First at O's Grill, the owner has brought back a classic that he used to serve early birds for breakfast in his food truck. The meat lover gyro was my favorite through all our restaurant week tastings. A beautiful mess greets you with a pillar of gyro meat. The first bite is an explosion of flavors that ushers in tender, demure chicken. Hard-boiled egg yolk adds a nice buffering texture between the sauce and the meat. Overall, the flavors stuffing this giant piece of fluffy pita bread are cohesive because of the seasoning. I'm abbreviating this article, as you can tell, and a three-course meal at Midtown Reserve is making its first splash in Restaurant Week. A roasted pear salad with gorgonzola cheese kicks it off. Bright pear notes are crisp, and beads of honey pearls complement a bed of arugula and a very light maple Dijon dressing. Gorgonzola cheese balls with a fried shell on the outside offer a sharp bite. As an Italian blue cheese, its veins bring a lot of salt to the table. If you don't like blue cheese, avoid those. They're not likely to change your perspective. You may never be be royalty, but you can treat yourself to a rich dessert to cap off restaurant week. King Cape Crepes at Groundswell Cafe. These crepes by Philip Hamilton, a a former sous chef in New Orleans, bring a taste of Mardi Gras to Iowa. Crepes are made more than thin pancakes by their filling, and this place offers you three. Returning to the front page, this story is by Diana Nolan, tribute to Cedar Rapids' Music Man. Cameron Sullenberger didn't seek the spotlight. He was the spotlight, shining on the actors, voice students, music students, and church choir members he challenged to do their best. Sullenberger, age 54, of Cedar Rapids, died Saturday after suffering a heart attack at CSPS Hall before a rehearsal for Revival Theatre Company's upcoming production, Million Dollar Quartet. The show, for which he was the music director, was slated to run February 24 to March 5, but it has been postponed to March 1 to 5. In 2014, Sullenberger co-founded the professional theatre troupe with Brian Glick, and in a social media post, Amy Blades of Cedar Rapids said he changed the theater scene in Cedar Rapids. The joy he brought to rehearsals and performances was inspirational. Cameron always would say, be a first-rate version of yourself, Glick said, and he exemplified that. Sullenberger moved in three different worlds, his private world, his music performance and education world, and his church music world. As news of his death spread this week, actors, educators, students, and friends from all of those facets have flooded social media with tributes of his kindness and excellence. 
Those worlds will connect this weekend to honor his memory during a visitation from 3 a, excuse me, from 3 to 8 p.m. Friday at Knoll Ridge Christian Church, 711 C Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids, followed by the funeral service at 11 a.m. Saturday at the church where he served as Senior Director of Worship, Music and Creative Arts, and Spiritual Growth Coordinator. A celebration of life is planned for 7 p.m. March 25 at Theater Cedar Rapids. Finishing up with the weather, it's snowing outside. Snow and wind are likely today. Normally, we see a high of 33 and a low of 16. The record high set on this date was 67 degrees in 1921. The record low, 21 below zero, was set in 1905. Looking to mostly sunny and partly cloudy through the rest of the week, sunset tonight is at 5.41 p.m. and sunrise tomorrow is at 7 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 40 minutes of daylight. We are in the waning crescent moon phase, moon rise at 5.30 a.m. and moon set at 2.19 p.m. And that does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, February 16th. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.